Our text tonight comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. You can find us on page 1016 in the Pew Bible. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. And so uh, I've shared uh, in years past, I've shared about this one conversation I had that was unforgettable. Well, I was sitting in Starbucks and reading uh, my Bible, and the guy came up and um, and uh, and he started talking to me, and you know, and and, and said, you were a Christian? It's like, yeah, yeah. And so we started talking about things, and and then he said, you know, I just I don't think that really a lot of people get the whole devil thing right, you know. And I said, yeah. I said I agree. I think you know, I think he's kind of this pointy-headed, you know, kind of buffoon, or he doesn't exist, or something, you know. And, and then, he, and then he's like, yeah. And he said, you know, you know, really, I think God and the devil are kind of friends, you know. And, I was like, and it just the convert, you know, so you're like, you're just kind of trucking along. And the conversation just goes, you know, just turns like a sharp turn. You ever been in a conversation like that? Where you're just kind of trucking along and all of a sudden just kind of like, woo. You just kind of go, wait, 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 how do we get here? Where do we go? And, uh, well... It feels a lot. Um, I grew up in Southern California, so you go to Disneyland, and so um, and I'm sure they have this at Disney World. I've never been there, um, but even though I lived in Orlando for two years, never went. Uh, but um, I was a broke seminary student, so <laughs> so. Um, but uh, but they had the log ride, and you go on the log ride, and the log ride is you know you just go and you're just kind of in the water, and just kind of everything's nice and everything's chipper and stuff like that, and all of a sudden it just goes. Woo! Like down and shifting a ride, you're just going around and you don't know what's going on. And, um, and, and you know, it's, that's what some conversations feel like. That's a bit what reading this text feels like, right? You're just going along, I'm suffering for Christ, and then all of a sudden, just like, all right, spirits in prison and Noah, and then yourself, and the baptism saves you, and like, you're just kind of all over. But where am I? You get the end, you're like, okay, I'm at the end of chapter three, but I don't know where I'm at, right? So. Now, now what it's, it's not weird that Peter takes us back to Jesus and suffering. That's not unusual. It's just when he starts going into the other stuff and how that fits in almost like we should understand what he's talking about. Uh, and it's, it should be of some comfort that even Martin Luther, who was never short for a pithy comment on Scripture, uh, said that this passage was so strange and obscure that after much time and study, he still doesn't know what it means. All right. So if you're if you say I don't really understand this passage really well, you're in good company. All right. <laughs> so um, and so we're going to jump into the weirdness uh, of, of this. I, I, I almost I almost entitled this sermon when things get weird. Um, but but I want us to see what Peter is doing in these verses as a whole, which is simply this: that Peter in these verses in eighteen through twenty two as a whole. He is grounding the Christian's call to, uh, and commitment to suffer for Christ in the hope of the gospel, which is signified 
in baptism. Okay. That's essentially what he's doing. That Peter is grounding the Christian's call and commitment to suffer for Christ in the gospel, which is signified in baptism. And you could even add to that testified in the Old Testament with the examples like Noah. So, so first we're going to look at how the suffering of Christ saves us from judgment in the first section of verses 18 to 20. And then in the rest of the passage, verses 21, uh, 21 and 22, how this, this relates to the sign of, uh, of salvation in baptism. And so first we're going to look at verses 18 to 20. The suffering of Christ saves us from judgment. And that Peter once again goes to the suffering of Jesus just like he did at the end of chapter 2. And, and in doing so, he shows us how Christ's suffering grounds our suffering. It makes sense of our suffering. Now, Peter opens this passage with the word for. And, and so that indicates he is using this as a reason to explain or strengthen the argument that it came, that just came, that he just finished saying, and in which he was saying there that it was better to suffer for doing good than for evil. And who suffered for doing good more than Jesus? So it makes sense that he would say that. And so he suffered, Jesus suffered for sins and they weren't his own sins, right? They were the sins of others. He was perfectly innocent. And his purpose in doing so, as Peter says, was to bring us to God, to reconcile us to the Lord. And now one teaching that was repeated throughout the gospels is that the disciples shall follow in the way of the master. Right of his master, he should not expect any less than to become like the master. That's what a disciple was supposed to do. And so, if the master, our Savior Jesus, as he himself said, if he suffered for doing good, well, should we not expect to suffer also? Um, should we expect to be exempted from suffering? Because Jesus never promised that. He never said, "Follow me." And I will, you know, I will give you all your dreams. Follow me and I will do all the things. Those are, that's what politicians do, right? They say, follow me and I'll give you everything you want, right? Uh, whereas, whereas Jesus says, follow me and, and you'll have to die. And, and like, that's what he says, right? You have to die. You have to go to the cross, carry your own cross. And Jesus never said that, uh, that he would suffer so we didn't have to suffer. He didn't say he was going to suffer, so we didn't experience suffering or affliction in this life. He said, and he did exactly what Peter just described in this passage, uh, or the passage prior to this. He said he, he, or he suffered and he died for our sins. Uh, he substituted his righteous self for his unrighteous people. He did this not so that you and I could avoid momentary, temporary suffering in this life, but so that he could reconcile us to God and so that we would have eternal life. And how did this, he accomplish this? Well, Peter tells us, he says, by being put to death in the flesh and being made alive in the spirit. As one author wrote, he experienced physical death to bring a spiritual and eventually physical life in the resurrection. Now that phrase, made alive in the spirit, kicks off the first of many debates about this passage. Because the question is, is when it says alive in the spirit, is it a lowercase s or a capital S? 
Is it, are we talking about being made alive in terms of like a spirit, like the, like the soul? Or are we talking about in terms of the Holy Spirit? And that is a uh, unresolved debate even today. Now, for my part, I believe Peter is speaking of the resurrection of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, and that we essentially that. And so, but basically, P, Peter is saying here that uh, we suffer not only because Christ suffered, uh, but this but his sufferings ground our sufferings in in the purposes of God, because we are followers of Christ. But also what we need to see here is that Christ's suffering redeems our suffering. It doesn't just explain why we suffer um, or give us understanding that we should expect suffering. It also his suffering redeems our suffering because the resurrection of Christ brings hope to us as we endure suffering, whether it is by the hand suffering that comes by the hand of persecutors or simply the experience of living in a fallen world that's cursed. Peter is not merely saying that, you know, um, you know, look, he's not saying in bringing up Jesus, he's not saying, hey, Jesus had it way harder than you. So quit whining, you bunch of babies. You know, like that's not what he's saying. here, Right. He's uh, he what he's saying is, uh, is, is that the greatest one, Jesus Christ, suffered the most unjustly, even unto death, and he overcame death itself. Which means he also overcame his sufferings. And so those who suffer in Christ will overcome their sufferings as well. And we, and, and, and we hold this hope. We're talking about the resurrection a lot on Sunday mornings right now. We just doing a deep dive into 1 Corinthians 15. And so we just we get into what if the resurrection isn't true this morning. You know, that section in Paul where he talks about what happens. And he says, you know, basically if, if the resurrection isn't true, then those who have died have really perished. Then there really is only hope in this life, not the next in Jesus Christ. And, and if that's the case, then we are most to be pitied. Right? But that's not the case because Christ has been resurrected. And so we hope, we have this hope with the knowledge that just as our Lord did not escape suffering, that we suffer, but we have the hope of resurrection because Christ was resurrected. We have, we, and we have his victory. We have his victory over death, his victory over sin, his victory over suffering. That is that he bears the marks in his body as he rules and reigns over us and says, as I am, so you shall be like me. And as verses 19 and 20 make clear, just like Noah. Now, that's kind of half half that's halfway a joke. Because um, you don't readily think of Noah when you think of suffering and things like that. Usually you think of faithfulness with someone who was faithful, even when it didn't maybe didn't quite make sense to build a big, big boat in the middle of the desert. But um, but this and this is where the passage gets really difficult. Um, And so there are two difficulties that we need to deal with in these in the in the in this section. Uh, and, and that is, it's funny, the two difficulties just in this section. <laughs> so we haven't talked about the baptism part yet. But uh, in first in verse 19, what does Peter mean that in the spirit, whichever way you're going to interpret that, either with a little s or a big s, what does he mean that in the spirit Jesus proclaimed to the spirits, little s, in prison? What does that mean? And secondly, and connected to it, the spirits seem to be identified with those who were in the days of Noah who disobeyed and were killed in the flood of judgment while Noah and his family were delivered 
the ark. And so what's the, what, what, what do we do here? What's the, what's the answer here? How do we understand what's going on? Well, there are three basic options to understanding what Peter is saying. There's always more theories. I'm going to give you the, kind of the top three here. Earlier this morning, it was funny. I was, I was like, man, I'm preaching on this morning. I had to preach, preach about baptism of the dead passage in first Corinthians 15. And then I'm like, I'm doing baptism of the dead there. And then Noah and Peter and stuff. And then at night I was like, all right, well, it's, it's fun time. All right. Well, and there was in the morning, it was like, there were 40 different theories for how to understand that passage. Um, and I boiled it down to two. So we're just going to deal with the big three here. And so first, um, some have argued, uh, and uh, particularly this was earlier on um, in the life of the church, that some argued that sometime between his death and resurrection, this is going about what does it mean for Jesus to preach the spirits in prison? What does that mean? Okay. So some argued that uh, sometime between his death and his resurrection, Jesus went and preached to those who were in Hades, in the realm of the dead. Um, and so now one major problem with this theory is that it kind of it presents this idea of a post mortem post death conversion that you can die and get some kind of second chance. Right. To get you, that if you die, then you get presented with the gospel somehow. Right? It opens up a, a, a can of worms of its own when you start talking about conversions after you die. If Jesus comes and preaches to you. Um, and it's clear in the scriptures that if you've not trusted in God's promises before death, then it's too late. Like that is something that it is clear in the scriptures. But some, as some will ask, they'll say, well, what about those who came before Christ came? What about those Old Testament folks? What about those who were, were not around? How does that work? Well, um, well, we know that Christ is the fulfillment of the promises of God in the Old Covenant. And so it would follow that any and we know that the covenants, they do have overlap. They're not the same, but there is some continuity there, because if we're going to say that Jesus was promised back in Genesis 315, that Jesus is promised as a Messiah uh, through Abraham and the covenant with Abraham, through David and the covenant with David, which we clearly do see that and we say that we believe that. then that means that those who trusted in those promises during those appropriate times would have been what we would call saved. They would have come to a greater revelation of knowledge as they came to the Lord after their death, but they wouldn't have been like put in a holding cell until Jesus came and then would go to them and say, Hey, I'm the fulfillment of Abraham. You know, like that's not, that's not what we believe happens. We believe that those old Testament saints that trusted in the promises of God um, are, are functionally equivalent to we today who have a clearer revelation in Jesus Christ who trust in Jesus. That's why we talk about the, we'll even call the old, we'll call the Old Testament saints, the Old Testament church and the New Testament church. Because it, the church, the, the people of God spans ages, even all going back to the Old Testament. And so, uh, and so, that, so that's a major issue um, with that one. The second uh, option is that uh, Christ preached by the spirit through Noah at the time. So that so that Noah went and he was telling people they needed to repent, need to you know of their sins and get on the boat, right? And um, and that and that he was preaching through the Spirit that Christ was essentially preaching through Noah, and uh, and that it was rejected by the people and they were uh, they were judged. Um, now, the issue with this position is that it seems as though Peter is saying in the text that the preaching came after his death. 
Because in the spirit, it seems like it could be interpreted as Peter saying he was raised in the spirit. And then in that resurrection, he, uh, after his resurrection, by the spirit, he went and preached. So there's some who there's those who argue that it, the grammar says that it's a temporal thing where it's like it, it's a series of events that Jesus died and he was raised from the dead. And then he went and preached to the spirits in prison. And so that there's a clear kind of chronology here in, in, in Peter that Peter's communicating. I disagree with that. But um, this was also the position of many of the reformers uh, as well. And then the third option, which is kind of a more uh, – so one was kind of more ancient church, uh, early church option. Uh, that was early earlier on the first several centuries of the church. Not exclusively, but it was there. Um, the second one was the position of many of the reformers. And then this one is the position of many modern scholars in particular and believing scholars as well. But that before or after the resurrection of Christ – uh, Christ went and declared his victory over the fallen angels, essentially, um, who are in Hades or hell. Um, now, this relies on a lot of Jewish tradition outside of the Bible, um, relies pretty heavily on uh, First Enoch, which is a book that came out in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, so what we call the, this is what we call Jewish Apocrypha from the intertestamental period. Um, and the idea here, um, it, it was Jewish, Jewish tradition outside of the Bible. Um, uh, the, Nephilim, the, the Nephilim from Genesis 6, the giants, um, that these, these were essentially demons. And that they were, um, when they were killed, they went to prison and God held them there. And, then, uh, and that Jesus is going and essentially declaring his victory over them uh, in his resurrection. There's a lot of modern scholars who take that theory. Uh, um, so, but I, I, for my part, this position relies too heavily on Jewish apocrypha, not enough on scripture, and um, and uh, and especially if you're relying on Jewish apocryphal book, that is um, scholars, even scholars who hold this position will say, Enoch, First Enoch's a pretty all over the place book, so it's 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 pretty messy. So it's um, it's hard to really take that as as the text that Peter is really heavily leaning on, um, as far as I can tell. So uh, now the, pro- the the issue here is: look, none of these options are without their problems. None of these options are without their challenges. But as I said, uh, I would probably go with the reformers uh, and the second option that Christ was preaching through Noah to the people at the time. Um, that that's what Peter is reflecting on back at the, in the time of Noah, uh, because. If you take the difficulties that we just got into and you kind of set those aside for a bit, we need to ask ourselves, why is Peter talking about Noah here? Why did he say, you know what, of all the Old Testament examples I could bring in here, well, I'm going to bring in Noah here. And, and, and so we need to think about Noah's situation. Noah was a follower of God who obeyed the Lord, who was ridiculed and reviled for his faith and his obedience to God. Uh, he, he and his family were all delivered from judgment, and those who rejected the word of the Lord perished in the judgment that came. And so in bringing up Noah, Peter is pointing to this pattern of reward for faith and the consequences of wicked unbelief. And he's speaking to a church who is currently being persecuted for their faith, who's being ridiculed, attacked, jailed. For their belief and trust in Jesus. And so essentially Peter is calling upon these, these Christians in northern Turkey to, to hope in God, to hope in his gospel, 
to continue walking in obedience uh, because when the judgment comes, they will be delivered just as Noah was, and to, but to an even greater degree. Because when the next flood of judgment comes, as Peter says in 2 Peter, it will be a flood of fire, not a flood of water. So, um, and so this kind of, this helps us kind of move out of a very difficult passage and then, and then move into the next difficult passage, which is the sign of hope, of this hope that saves us. Right? So he goes back and he says, look, he says, Christ suffered. And Christ suffered. It's, it's better to suffer for doing good than for evil. For Christ suffered for you. He ensured your salvation. And so even though you suffer, trust in him. Because in the end, you'll be like Noah, who was delivered through his faith and obedience. As opposed to the wicked who were judged. And then he says, and now let's talk about the sign that signifies that salvation in verses 21 to 22. And now we need to highlight that baptism is a sign. One of the biggest issues that people have with verse 21 is, is, that, it's, is that Peter says uh, that baptism now saves you. And it's almost like that's all people see. And they also, therefore, baptism saves and they adopt this position um, or they start freaking out because it feels like there's this position that we've, we, we like to call baptismal regeneration, which says that the act of baptism, the water you know, hitting your body, saves you. That, or you being dunked in the tank saves you. That, that the actual ritual, the actual sacrament does the saving. Now, it is true that within a few hundred years, there were many in the church and, and, and there were significant voices, um, not least of which was Tertullian, the, the great church historian, who essentially believed in baptismal regeneration. Because, uh, it, because, the, what, they, um, it, it, because what, it, what they believed was that baptism, it, it would cleanse your sin, but only the sins that you had committed prior to baptism. That, and, so, um, and so any sins that you do after you're baptized, well, you got to deal with those on your own, right? The grace of God covers the pre-baptismal sins, not post-baptismal sins. So what do you think people would do with their baptism? They would put it off, right? They would reschedule. They'd say, preacher's not going to work this Sunday. We got to put it off. The family can't get into town. I'm just uh, sorry. You're like, we've been doing this for 20 years, man. You know, just like, and so, uh, and so, but people would often try to put it off to the point where they were practically on their deathbed. So that way they could be forgiven of their sins. Now we need to deal with arguments for baptismal regeneration on their merit, but you can also judge a tree by its fruit. And when you, when the practical fruit of a doctrine Say it has people putting their baptism off till they're nearly dead. You know that something's gone wrong. <laughs> you, know, so you know something has gone awry there, uh, even before you get into the argument. And so, um, and this passage is definitely not about baptismal regeneration. Um, uh, notice that Peter says baptism is not about washing dirt away from the body. Uh, baptism, he says, corresponds to the grace and judgment of God, especially in Jesus. This is important to see here because if baptism saved, it wouldn't correspond to anything. 
things that correspond don't save. It would, because the, the baptism itself would have to be the grace of God. It wouldn't correspond to the grace of God. Uh, but baptism, we know, is a sign and seal of God's grace. And, to, and the way I explain how sacraments work, when we do our church membership class or we talk about sacraments, uh, baptism, or if you call them ordinances, whatever it is, um, what I, the way that I explain it is saying, look, if you're driving down the highway and you see a sign for Chick-fil-A, that sign corresponds to an actual physical location of a restaurant where you can go get delicious chicken, except today, right? You're, you're out of luck. Um, so, uh, and um, I, it surprised me how many people have written songs about this. So, uh, and, and and then, uh, and, and so you have, it, you know, so you, you see the sign corresponds to chicken, but you wouldn't go to the sign to get as a dispensary of chicken sandwiches, right? And that's what you're doing when you say baptism itself saves, you're saying the thing itself is doing it. And it's not it's the sign that's pointing to the thing that does the saving. And this in this case, that is Jesus Christ. And so baptism, Peter says, corresponds as a sign of salvation and judgment. And that is true. Baptism is a sign of grace and judgment because grace always comes in the context of judgment. Right? And so a baptism represents the death of Jesus for our sin, the forgiveness of our sin, that we are partakers of the covenant of grace. And so baptism is a sign of judgment for sin in the death of Jesus. It is also a sign of salvation by faith in Jesus. And so baptism is a sign that is placed not on the side of the highway, but on our bodies. The bodies of believers and their children. And it represents the union of, of Christ and his people. And Christ and the, and, and the individual believer. And so it's, it's a personal sign that is placed upon us. It's a sign that we belong to the Lord. That we are obligated to honor him. And this, so this helps us to understand what Peter is saying. here, If we think about baptism and understand it rightly. Because for baptism, he says, is an appeal to God for a good conscience. Uh, Note that he isn't saying the act of being baptized is an appeal of the conscience. He is talking to people who have been baptized already. He's not telling them to get baptized. They've already been baptized. He's saying that those who have the mark of baptism placed upon them, the baptized community of faith, He's saying baptism is a sign of their sincerity and life and good conscience to trust and follow the Lord. And that appeal comes through, he says, the resurrection of Jesus. It would not be possible to commit ourselves to the Lord if not for Jesus and his resurrection. It comes through his ascension, even, Peter says. It comes through the authority that Jesus presently has as he rules and reigns over the authorities and powers. And so baptism is not only pointing us to the death of Christ, but also to his victory over death in his resurrection, in his ascension, and the authority that he has as he rules and reigns. 
And so baptism is a sign of judgment of our sin in Christ. It's a sign of our eternal life and his resurrection and ascension through the union we have by the Holy Spirit and through faith alone. But then, but in order to kind of really kind of bring this home, we need to talk about how baptism strengthens our hope. Because that's what Peter's trying to do here. So he's bringing it up. You know, because, it, because we ask the question, you know, why is Peter talking about baptism here? Just like we asked, why Noah in that other question? And that's, one, that's a helpful thing. <laughs> why? Right? When you're, when you're looking at a passage and it's really confusing, just step back and go, okay, why would they do this? Why would they write this? Why would they say this? Why baptism, Peter? How can this help a bunch of persecuted Christians in you know, modern-day northern Turkey? That day was Asia Minor. You know, how can it help us today? Well, recall how Peter used the Noah story to encourage the church. They are a church that is persecuted for their faith. Their lives are hard. They live in a hostile environment. And one scholar put it so well, I'm just going to quote her in full. She says, Peter's readers will be among those who escape the second flood of judgment because they have already passed through the waters of Christian baptism, which saves them by virtue of the vindicating resurrection of Jesus Christ. Or to put it another way, if you're struggling, if you're persecuted, if you're doubting, if you're under assault by the enemy through persons, temptations or trials, Then, Christian, Peter says, remember your baptism. Because the baptism, whether you received it as an infant or as an adult, whether you received it 70 years ago or 7 minutes ago, is a sign that you belong to Christ. It's a sign of the grace of God at work on your behalf. It's a sign of His grace that is saving you from the coming judgment and blessing you with eternal life in the kingdom of God. It's a sign of Christ's authority and power over you now as he rules at the right hand of God the Father. And so this passage is strange. The whole 18 to 22. It's a strange, difficult passage. No doubt about it. There are aspects of this passage that we do not confidently understand. And it's okay to admit that. In cases like these, we need to read the word. We need to let scripture interpret scripture. We need, to, we need to be careful, be clear about what we do know for certain. That's one of the important things. Sometimes we hit these awkward passages and all of a sudden it's like we forgot all the certain things that we knew. And it just throws us for a loop. And you got to step back and go, okay, well, what do I know? You know, it's kind of like if, you, if that happened in life and you encounter something you didn't know, you'd be like, you know, you'd be like, okay, well, gravity still works. You know, like you got to go back and be like, okay, what still works? Well, you go back and go, okay, well, what is clear here? Well, I know that salvation is by faith alone through Jesus Christ. That is clear through passage after passage after passage after passage. It can't be that I get saved because somebody threw water at me, right? It can't be that. So what can it be? You know, it just helps to, I call it fencing the yard. You know, just kind of, what, what can it not be? And then we kind of find out the area that we can play in. And work there. But read the word, consider it, and then be convinced of your own mind. And then, especially in these kinds of things where it's debated and we're not sure, just hold it gently. 60-40, be willing to change your mind to different options. Don't don't make hard decisions on obscure passages. Right? I said this morning, we were talking about baptism of the dead. We have so little information about being baptizing people in the name of the dead that we don't need to start a practice of it. We're not 
in violation of the commands of God because we don't do baptism for the dead in the church. Why? Because we don't know what it is. We don't even know if Paul liked it. He just mentioned it once in a letter. So it doesn't mean that we have to go do it. But we have to think about these things and be clear about them. But what is not up for debate here, even if we are thinking about things or things that we do hold in doubt or that we hold uh, uh, you know, um, with some uncertainty and we're willing to change our minds on, what is not up for debate is the grace of God that saves us from judgment through the suffering of Christ. That is clear. Even in this obscure passage, that is clear. We have a sign of that salvation in our baptism. And so for those Christians who are suffering, they are directed to the suffering Savior. Through whose suffering we are saved. And the sign of His grace, the sign of His love, the sign of the eternal life that is in Him, we bear upon our own bodies in Christian baptism. Let's pray.